Lord, lift us up where we belong. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm wondering if you are by temperament a conformist or a nonconformist. Do you go with the flow or do you run against the wind? This may shock you. I'm a total conformist. Always have been. It's just safer, you know, to conform. But I always wanted to be a nonconformist. Deep down inside of me, there is a hippie that longs to express himself. Uh, to, the evidence of this was manifested in college. You know, I went to Eastern University, which is an American Baptist school, and what I did to make money was I designed people's tattoos. I designed tattoos for all the bad Baptist kids. I made a lot of money. I did. But I, you know, I designed tattoos, but I never got a tattoo because then I would be outside the mainstream of Baptist culture. And what would that be like? I mean, the prospects are pretty terrifying. Uh, so I wanted to remain mainstream, so I never got a tattoo. I also don't think I could pull one off, uh, but nevertheless, uh, I remain, uh, I remain um, uh, untainted to this day. But um, so I'm wondering uh, if you are a conformist or a nonconformist. I'm not sure it matters if you're a conformist or a nonconformist. The, the, what matters is the issue at hand to which you conform or not conform. And uh, Peter invites his audience to be what I call rebel conformists. Rebel conformists. I want to focus tonight on verses 14 through 19 because in those uh, verses, Peter shows us the goal of rebel conformity and the power for rebel conformity. The goal of rebel conformity, at least according to Peter, is holiness. Holiness. This is what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter is writing to a group of refugee Christians scattered in various directions, scattered because of persecution from the Roman government. And he is using this occasion to tell these people who have been robbed of all comforts, using this occasion to say, don't backtrack. Now that you're under duress, don't rely upon the old coping mechanisms that used to get you through. It's almost like Peter is a Jungian before there was Carl Jung. Carl Jung is a genius, was a genius, by the way. He saved us from a lot of the mess of Sigmund Freud, I'm just saying. Uh, but Carl Jung, that was really funny if you only had ears to hear, but, um, <laughs> but Carl Jung had this idea that under stress, you regress. Under stress, you regress. It's almost always true that when you are in a place of profound 
duress, inner torment, anxiety, what will happen to you is that you will retreat to earlier patterns of relating to people and reacting to people. If you don't believe me and you're young, you're a student, check out what happens when you go home this summer. Just saying. You go home to the old superstructure. Your parents still will treat you as if you're 16, but you're now 22. And you will, under that uh, situation, become 14 in your behavior. I'm just talking. And parents, by the way, the same is true of you. The things that you, you think you've moved past now that your children have flown the coop, wait till they come home. And we'll see, right? We'll see. Uh, because Jung, like St. Peter, is right. <laughs> that under stress you regress. And Peter is he's very concerned that these refugee Christians, now that they're in a place of real difficulty, he wants them to eschew the old patterns that would be far easier to adopt. He, he's calling his audience... <laughs> Uh, not to retreat into silence or some sort of survival of the fittest mode. No, he calls them in this state to conform, to be rebels against the old nature, but to conform to a new nature. And this is what he says in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want to talk about the, the dual dimensions of holiness, the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical dimension of holiness is especially important for Christians because we believe the whole concept of holiness is not located in a, in a person or in a group or in a state uh, or in a church. It's rooted in God himself. It is principally a trait of God. Holiness entails two ideas, the holiness of God, two big ideas. The first is distinctiveness, that God is, in his own nature, different than, distinct from, anyone we've ever known. Feuerbach made the categorical mistake of saying that all divinity is is a projection of human consciousness onto the heavens. That's where he said we got um, through... Um, inner evolution, the idea of a god. So we just look at a king, look at a monarch, look at a leader, and project that construct onto the sky. Or we take our own personalities and paste that onto the sky. The problem with this, of course, uh, is the Olympian problem. That's what you get at Mount Olympus. You have these various gods that have interests and uh, problems and, uh, and the need for particular vengeances. And, and you understand that the Olympian court of Greek mythology is a bunch of gods that are just superhumans. But the God of the Hebrew scriptures is something very, very different than that. He's wholly other, shining through the text as someone that is very unlike ourselves. And so he's distinct, different, special, uncommon. And in that distinctiveness, he's also noble, nobler than we are. He's pure, he's strong, he's good, he's beautiful. So when we talk about holiness, we're talking about somebody who's distinct from us, separate, and also grander, greater, purer. And this is why when prophets or great leaders in the Bible have some uh, close encounter with God's holiness, what's the thing that happens immediately? They become undone. Undone. You take Isaiah, 
okay? You would want a kid like Isaiah or a parent like Isaiah. You want Isaiah to be the godfather of your daughter. Isaiah was a good guy, trustworthy, spoke the truth, uh, wrote beautifully, right? Scholarly type, still had a heart, you know, left brain, right brain sort of guy. What happens to him when he encounters the Lord? He experiences a gulf between himself and his maker. This good man sees God, whom the angels cry out to, saying, holy, 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 and Isaiah realizes he's not holy and says that he's a man of unclean lips, dwelling amongst the people of unclean lips. That's what holiness does. It's powerful, and it undoes all human pretenses and constructs. And in our own day, I think we have a lack of appreciation for, for and a terror of God's holiness. I think it's almost entirely absent, as if the idea of transcendence and power and might is something that is part of a bygone era. But now, since we have protein shakes and microwaves, we don't really need that anymore because we've come so far. That was sarcasm. Uh, and uh, we don't have Martin Luther's problem. Do you know what happened to Martin Luther during his first Mass? Because at that time, he believed that he was offering to God the propitiation of the Mass, the transubstantiated body and blood of Christ. And he was lifting the chalice, hoc est sanguine meum, this is my blood, and, and his hand started to shake and tremble, and he spilt the blood of Christ on the altar. And then, of course, he goes back to his room and flogs himself, and a classic Luther, you know. <laughs> Darlin', I don't know why I go to extremes. And we can quibble about his understanding at that time of Holy Communion, but he was terrified to come before Almighty God unworthily. And there's something really important about that understanding of, uh, of the divine. And I think God's holiness might seem too threatening or imposing for us, and so we supplant it. We supplant it with other ideas that may, in fact, be true of God. We, we talk about ideas that are easier to swallow and more palatable, like God's love or God's wide scope of inclusion or God's kindness. But without God's holiness, that is, his everlasting, unflinching, noble character, without that holiness, the death of Jesus, you understand, makes no sense. No sense. Because God's holiness is the background for the necessity of the cross. Without God's holiness, which demonstrates our own unholiness, there's no need for Jesus to die. And by the way, if Jesus doesn't die and make propitiation and the sacrifice of atonement for our sins, there is no love nor inclusion. Those two things are totally thrown out if you get rid of holiness and the cross. And, uh, and so I think sometimes we, um, what we want to do is what Albert Schweitzer, the brilliant New Testament scholar, said is that he, his criticism of the quest for the historical Jesus, which sought to uh, uh, redirect itself from the Gospels of the Bible and examine Jesus through, uh, through enlightenment reason, he said the danger of that sort of quest is that when we look down the well of history, we find not Jesus but only a reflection of ourselves. And sometimes in our quest for God, what we really want is what Feuerbach wanted, ourselves projected onto the sky with all of our licenses and prohibitions. Derek Webb puts it beautifully in a song entitled, I Repent. And this is what he writes. I repent of trading truth for a false unity. And I repent, I repent of confusing peace and idolatry by caring more of what they think than what I know of what we need. I've domesticated you, and now you look just like me. 
that the, uh, this, the origin and standard of holiness is vertical. It is not Ayn Rand. It is not the Huffington Post. It is not Milo Yiannopoulos. It is not Lena Dunham. It is not our friends. It is not the, the newest blog. It is, in fact, a holy God. That is the source, the constant source of all holiness. And if we detach ourselves from that, all of our versions of holiness will miss the mark. So that's ver- the vertical dimension of holiness. Now the horizontal dimension. That is holiness that affects how people live day by day. These are his words. And if we really wrap our minds around these words, we'll um, have a collective nervous breakdown. Uh, he writes, Be holy in all your conduct, and you shall be holy because I am holy. To support the idea of Christians behaving in a holy manner in all their conduct, Peter cites Leviticus 20. You shall be holy because I am holy. That may sound strange to our ears. Uh, we, We might say, and there's good reason to say, but wait a minute. I thought the key idea of the New Testament was not so much law, be holy as I'm holy, but grace, that you are loved when you're not holy that Christ died for you when you were completely disinterested and in the gutter of sin. And doesn't the New Testament also say that we're not under law, but under grace? Is Christianity therefore some bait and switch? We tell you it's about grace until you get in the door, and then we change the rules, and now it's really about you getting better day by day? I mean, what is this? Well, let me parse it out a little bit. The New Testament is clear in Romans 6, amongst other places, or all of Galatians, uh, that we are, in fact, not under the contract of the Old Testament law. We're not. That is, the law that was given to Israel that regulated their own public life. We are not under that law. But that law had varied ingredients, some of them perishable and some of them imperishable. The perishable elements of that law that faded away when the new covenant was introduced uh, were ceremonial laws, that is, having to do with sacrifice and worship in a temple. When you have Jesus, who is your temple, and Jesus, who makes the final sacrifice, the old temple and the old sacrifices are no longer important. We no longer obey those parts of the law, nor do we obey particular nationalistic stipulations that were only relevant to Israel as a particular theocratic nation-state. Because now, under the New Covenant, all nations are welcome in God's family, not just Israel. Those things were put away. But the imperishable part of that law covenant was its moral content. The New Testament authors seem to assume that the moral content of the Old Testament law is still extremely relevant for us. Through it, we are convicted of our sin, and by it, we are drawn to a vision of holiness and righteousness. Because in God's moral law, we see something about his eternal nature and quality that does not change. The Old Testament law is not our covenant. uh, And it is entirely powerless to condemn anybody in this room. But the picture of holiness which arises from it is just as true for us as it was for Israel. By the way, it's also good for us. Imagine a world, for example. No, no, no. Imagine your family without coveting. Let's just take coveting, for example. Wouldn't it be great... If we didn't waste our lives yearning for things that aren't ours, that God has for whatever reason chosen not to give us, we would have a lot more mental room and psychological relief if we could just give that sucker up. Be a lot better off. That's just one of them. 
And, you know, there's like nine more in that list. <laughs> as we read, you know, about the relevance of this idea that you shall be holy as I am holy, as we read about that, Peter, Peter has a disturbingly comprehensive expectation regarding holiness. Be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. And in case we wanted to say, well, that's just a generalization, you know, the, uh, the Old Testament moral law and then the Sermon on the Mount and then Paul's letters provide a very practical moral blueprint for human conduct. Very invasive, too. I mean, it deals with everything from, uh, from money to uh, romance to honesty. It hits morality from a variety of angles and uh, makes it all too devastatingly practical. Uh, and so what do we do with the weight of this demand? Be holy in all your conduct. Well, I'll tell you what we do. We lower the standard. <laughs> it's unbearable. This is what they do in the SATs, by the way. You may know that like, the, the scoring of American SATs, it hasn't um, completely crashed yet. And do you know why? It's not because we remain smart. Right? It's because they changed the standards of the test. They changed all the questions. That's what we'd like to do. We just change the standards. People do this when they're dating a lot. I notice this. They date somebody who doesn't treat them very well and speaks, uh, speaks roughly to them and, and doesn't seem to respect them, but they, they have low self-esteem, and so they think, well, this is the best I can do. And then that's what happens when you lower the market, actually. You get sick inside. You get sick inside. Uh, and you just settle. You spend your whole life settling. And we do this with the Bible, too. We lower the market. We have a very selective focus, you know, in our, in our Bible reading. I see this all the time. You know, there, there are a lot of theology blogs out there that are not really worth reading, um, but that with very selective focus. You know, for example, on one side of the cultural divide, uh, there's a preference for biblical passages that relate to justice, poverty, ecology, and uh, war peace issues. On the other side of the cultural divide, there are uh, people that prefer passages that relate to abortion, euthanasia, and human sexuality. Here's the truth that we may wish to avoid, but is true nonetheless. Biblical holiness relates both to the poor and human sexuality. And there's no getting around it. We can't really lower the market effectively, you know. Holiness is like gravity. It does not go away because you say so, or because I say so. We can close our eyes and put our hands over our ears and pretend that life isn't the way it is, but that doesn't change the Gibraltar of God's holiness that is, for our own good, inflexible. Instead of going in that direction, Peter urges his audience, don't cave to the pressure, don't cave. Instead, use this time of difficulty to be rebel conformist to God's holiness. Now, if I stop the sermon right here, it would be a moral sermon, but it would be sub-Christian. I haven't given you any enabling word at all. This sermon has been entirely the law. It's been true, insofar as I understand the text, but it's entirely the law. And if I just gave you the law, you would leave this place in total despair, if you're honest, in total despair. Because who is this man? Who is this woman? And that's why we have to now pivot. We have to pivot to the gospel. We have to move to the gospel uh, because we need power. We need power to be the rebel conformist that God wants us to be. This is verse 18. You were ransomed 
from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice the strange operation of God here. He makes us holy by giving us a holy gift and uses holy descriptions, precious blood, spotless, blemishless lamb. He gave us something that was perfect. See, holiness is not only a description of who God is, but what God does. Holiness isn't just a passive attribute of God, that he is vast and superior and different and nobler. Holiness is what God does. It's what he enacts. It's like the word righteousness in Romans. Luther used to be terrified of the concept of righteousness because he assumed it was the characteristic of God by which he stood condemned because nobody can match God's righteousness. What he failed to see, but later did see, is that righteousness is the active agent of God whereby he makes us righteous. Same is true of holiness. It isn't just a passive attribute. It's the thing that God does to send Jesus in order to make us holy. How does God make us holy? How does he empower us to pursue that holiness? He loves us into life. He treats us like treasure. This is the unique Christian perspective on holiness. All other world religions will teach you that you are acceptable once you become acceptable. Christianity says, no, 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 that is not how it works. God is the initiator in this. And God has come to you first to make you holy. This is why Bishop J.C. Ryle Great low church Anglican bishop. You should read every word he has ever written. Just saying. Uh, He wrote this in his book on holiness. Would you be holy? Would you become a new creation? Then begin with Christ. You will do nothing profitable till you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the beginning of all holiness. Men sometimes try to make themselves holy first of all. And the sad work they make of it, they toil and labor and turn over many new leaves. And yet, like the woman with the issue of blood before she came to Christ, they feel nothing bettered, but rather find themselves worse. They're beginning in the wrong place. They are building up a wall of sand. Their work runs down as fast as they throw it up. They are bailing water out of a leaky vessel. The leak gains on them, not they on the leak. Other foundations of holiness can no man lay other than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Holiness does not lead to grace, but grace leads to holiness. Uh, Love comes first, then the change. This is true in all the great novels, you know. It was true in A Christmas Carol where Scrooge was given a second chance at life, even though he didn't deserve it and then embrace that chance. It was true of Les Mis, where the bishop gave the convict the stolen candlesticks so that he could have a chance at a new life. It was true in Man of La Mancha, when Don Quixote called the prostitute Aldonza by a new name, called her Dulcinea, meaning my sweet little one, until she finally believed that she was worth something. But the love comes first. Brendan Manning, the uh, great author and former priest who recently passed away, discovered in the midst 
of a recovery from alcoholism that his treasured friend and sponsor from Alcoholics Anonymous named Joe B., who had 20 years of sobriety under his belt, backslid into heavy drinking, lost his job, his wife, his children, his house, and was now living on the street in Tampa, Florida. Brennan scoured the city of Tampa looking for Joe but couldn't find him. And one day, uh, Brennan saw a man that looked just like Joe. He was wearing a tattered Salvo shirt, shaking from alcoholic withdrawal, begging on a street corner. He came up to him and said, Hi, Joe, but realized that the beggar uh, was not Joe after all, a near lookalike, but not his friend. And Brennan got down on his knees and kissed the beggar's hands and embraced him and then returned home, not thinking much more of it. A few days later, Brennan found this letter in his mailbox. Dear Brennan, you will never know what you did for me, your old sponsor, two weeks ago in Tampa. You didn't see me, but I saw you. I was 20 yards away looking through a storefront window. When I saw you kneel down and kiss that wino's hands, you wiped away from my eyes the blank stare of the walking dead. When I saw that you cared, I mean really cared, my heart began to grow wings. Small wings, feeble wings, but wings. You breathe life into me. I need you to know that. I had a bottle of wine in my hand. I dropped it in the trash. I haven't had a drink since. Brennan, if you ever wish to know who Joe B. is, remember that I'm someone you know very well. I'm every man you meet. I'm every woman you meet. Brennan, am I you? Wherever I now go, sober by the grace of God, one day at a time, I will thank him for you, Dulcinea. This is how it works. If I'm to become treasure, I need to be treated like treasure. He treats us like treasure. He dignifies us, ennobles us, and then we get the chance of becoming what we are regarded to be. This is Peter's quest. He is scouring the globe for some tattered rebel conformists who won't be bought off in this life by all of the shiny objects. He is looking for some women and men who are saved and secured by God's grace alone and who will dare to enlist in a new sort of rebellion against the dark. A rebellion which chides that which is evil and embraces the vision, the liberating vision of holy living that is found in the New Testament. Peter believes in us, and I do too. And I think that God may just make heroes of us all. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.